Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to this CHEST Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Gretchen Winter, your CHEST podcast moderator. So thank you all for joining us today for the sixth and final part of a series of podcasts with Dr. James Stoller, where we have been discussing leadership development in line with his series of articles published in CHEST. Today, we're going to be discussing his article, Strategic Planning for the CHEST Clinician. So Dr. Stoller is a pulmonary and critical care physician and the chairman of the Education Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. He holds the Gene Wall Bennett Professorship of Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine and the Samson Global Leadership Academy Endowed Chair. His pulmonary research interests regard alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, and he served on the board of directors of the Alpha-1 Foundation. His interest in leadership and leadership development stems from his pursuit of a master's in organizational development, and he serves as an adjunct professor of organizational behavior at the Weatherhead School of Management at the Case Western Reserve University and honorary visiting professor at the Bay School of Business and City University in London. He directed the American Thoracic Society's Emerging Leaders Program and directs CHESS Leadership Development Course. His recent book, Better Humans, Better Performance, regards achieving high organizational performance through creating cultures anchored in the seven classical virtues in line with this series we've been discussing. Well, thank you, Gretchen. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, Absolutely delighted to join you again. We're so happy that you did. So to start us off, in this article, you quote a business aphorism frequently ascribed to Peter Drucker, which you actually had said in some prior sessions as well. That quote is, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So we've already discussed organizational culture in a prior podcast, but why dedicate an entire article to strategic planning if culture is the more important aspect? Why is strategy important? Well, it's a great question. Um, and. Uh, they're really complementary, uh, culture and strategy. The metaphor that we often have used is that culture is like the, 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 the gar- is like the garden, is the soil in the garden and strategy are the plants. So strategy, namely what we do as an organization, what initiatives we undertake are completely dependent upon the fertility of the environment. Uh, but, but being clear on what you're trying to accomplish and how to do that successfully, namely strategy, is equally important. And that's why they're complementary. So then before we delve deeper into this topic, we should really start by defining what an organizational culture is, which we did discuss in a previous podcast, as well as, in contrast, what is a strategy. So can you please define both of those for our listeners? Sure. Great question. Thank you. So... Going back to Edgar Schein, who's one of the gurus of organizational culture, culture is essentially the body of solutions to problems that traditionally have worked in the organization. Basically, it's what new members of the organization are taught as to how to get things done. Or more colloquially, it's it's how how do things get done around here? It's what people talk about 
when pre-COVID they would come around the water cooler or the coffee pot. That's culture. In contrast, strategy, as I mentioned before, in the metaphor of a garden is, is what, what are we doing? What, what, what are we trying to accomplish? If we look at the sort of dictionary definition of strategy, we might say it's a plan of action or a policy designed to achieve a major or overall goal or aim. There's a, there's a subtext of the idea of strategy, which is really framed by the business world, which, you know, CEOs of all of our hospitals are very much aware of framed by gurus of, 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 of organizational strategy like Michael Porter, who talk about strategy as being the competitive differential advantage. How do we, in our effort at any particular hospital, how do we distinguish ourselves in the climate of a large community of hospitals so that patients will seek our services and are associated with our competitive differential advantage? What we're mostly going to be talking about today is the more generic uh, notion of strategy. How do we get things done? Uh, and so let me stop there. So then in your article, you discuss how physicians are commonly deficient-based thinkers. Can you please explain what that means, why we are that way, and why it might be a hindrance in some circumstances? Yeah, a little bit of an asterisk. I, I think the term we use is deficit-based thinkers. Ah. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, I don't think we're deficient in any way, but, but we, we can be <laughs> deficit-based, <laughs> or at least hope, hopefully not. Um, the, by deficit-based, what I mean is this. Um, we're trained, every one of us, uh, as doctors in general and certainly as pulmonary critical care, sleep doctors, to identify the problem, right? Patients come with a chief complaint. Uh, we drill down on the differential diagnosis of that chief complaint, dyspnea, for example. And the more seasoned we are clinically, the larger our differential and the more fluidly we navigate that differential with history, physical tests to come to the answer for the patient's, the etiology of the patient's problem and the solution, ideally, to that problem, uh, hypotension, whatever it may be. So that naturally conditions the way we think. And that works exquisitely for us clinically. But organizational thinkers remind us that when we think organizationally, when we think about strategy or culture, we need to think appreciatively. What is that? Appreciatively is thinking about when we're at our best, when we're at our best, what are we doing and how do we make more of that? Not thinking about what's the problem to fix, which is what clinical medicine is about, but when we're at our best, what does success look like and how do we mobilize how do we mobilize ourselves to achieve that and get more of it and the idea that underlies a, a large part of scholarship this is the work of david cooperider and others who framed this concept of appreciative inquiry is that words create worlds and the way we ask the question frames the answer and the notion is that when we frame the question appreciatively we get a more constructive organizational solution than when we frame the question in a deficit-based way. So getting real practical here, when, when, when I, and I'm sure this is true of many of our listeners, when we leave clinic or we leave the ICU or we leave the hospital and we go to some administrative context, I literally take a time out with myself and say, Jamie, I am leaving a deficit-based environment and I'm going to one in which I need to think appreciatively. Um, in, in order to adopt that, embrace that idea that when we think in a strength-based way, we get better solutions organizationally. I hope that makes sense. 
Absolutely. And it's much better than my uh, deficient-based reading (laughs) comprehension there. Um, So then you also discuss the real win-worth framework. What exactly is that and how does it apply to strategic planning? Yeah, another great question, uh, Dr. Winter. Thank you. So real win-worth is a construct that has been developed by by others, um, George Day, uh, my colleague Peter Ray. Um, this is a construct by which one can think about uh, strategic planning. Uh, and it it starts, and we summarize that for those of you interested in the paper, it's, it's summarized in Table 2 of the publication in Chess. But the, the real win-worth model is this. The first question is, when we think about something we're trying to do, ask ourselves the question, is the problem real? Underneath that question is, who's the customer? Who's paying for this? Um, who, who, who are the stakeholders? Uh, we'll get more granular in the discussion later, I, I think. What are the customer's pain points? What is the customer need that we can respond to, which again gets to Michael Porter's competitive differential advantage? And what are the customer's competing alternatives? If they don't want to take our product or our approach, what other approaches do we have? Do they have? And how do we encompass an approach to each of those? So that's the it's, is it real part. The, the win part, can we win, is, is it practical to think that we can actually accomplish this goal? In other words, do we have the tangible resources to deliver on our value proposition? Do we have the capital? Do we have the equipment? Do we have the budget? Do we have the personnel? And do we have the intangibles? Do we have the teamwork that's necessary? Do we have leadership that's conducive and aligned with this? That's the real, that's the win part. And then the worth part, the real win worth, the, the worth part of the real win worth triad is, is sort of, is it worth it? In other words, um, is there a cost effectiveness conversation that we need to have? What do we give up? in terms of resources in order to, to direct our energy and attention to this particular undertaking. Um, what affordable losses can we accept? Because there are always trade-offs. Um, and so that's the real win-worth model. It's a way of thinking about undertaking initiatives or strategy in the real world. I hope that makes sense. It does. So then can you walk us through what that framework would look like when you apply it to a healthcare setting? Sure. So the, the one we discussed in the paper, which was very topical, and my, my colleague, Dr. Raya Jwake, is a co-author of this paper and the, the chairman of, of, of our respiratory institute, now called the Integrated Hospital Institute, uh, was very much contending with a real-world question at the beginning of the pandemic of how do we assure consistent and um, um, and uniform ICU outcomes across multiple hospitals and multiple ICUs in a time when, as we all know, ICUs were very much challenged during the early phases of the pandemic. So that's the that's the action. That's the strategy we're trying to undertake for this model. How do we assure ICU outcomes are uniform across multiple ICUs in a healthcare system? Which I dare say is a question for many of our listeners even today, even in the post-pandemic environment. So if we think of real win-worth around the idea of a strategy to assure uniform ICU outcomes across multiple ICUs, the real question is, who, who is the customer? Who are the stakeholders? And, and I think we could all agree there are three. 
clearly the patient is the customer because they are the beneficiary of the outcomes in the ICU. But so is the hospital and so are the payers, right? The insurance companies or the government that, that support the work. That's the real conversation. The win conversation about resources is, do we have the talent in the ICU? Do we have the equipment in the pandemic? Did we have the PPE? Do we have the ventilators that we need? Um, do we have the, the budget that we need to be able to assure uniform outcomes across multiple ICUs? And the worth it part is, of course, is it worth it? We could all say that optimizing ICU outcomes is worth it, but the more sophisticated, nuanced part of the worth conversation is, what do we give up in terms of other necessary initiatives in the hospital in order to achieve this? And are we willing to give those things up? Because resources are not limitless in any of our environments, and we're making choices. So that's real win worth applied to the strategic plan of the strategic issue of assuring ICU outcomes that are uniform across a big healthcare system. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, that's very helpful. So you outlined steps for developing a strategic plan in the article. Can you walk us through those? Sure. And, and this is where the conversation about leadership and the individual competencies that we talked about, change, teamwork, um, culture, this is where they all come together, if you will, in terms of actually getting things done. And so the answer to the question now about how do we actually do this has a lot to do with, with a conversation we had in a prior podcast on change management. Readers or listeners may remember our conversation about the eight steps of change from Cotter. And, of course, that model starts with the case for change. So if we want to make the ICU outcomes uniform, how do, how do we make sure that everyone is aligned and understanding how urgent that is? It doesn't take a lot of convincing for any of us, but it needs to be articulated. The next step is to have a clear vision. So uniform ICU outcomes means that we will have SMART goals, specific, SMART being an acronym for specific, measurable, actionable, reasonable, and time-bound. Our goals, we want to reduce ICU mortality to 28%. And ventilator liberation rate to 95% by April 1st uh, would be an example of a SMART goal. Then we want to develop a guiding coalition. We want to have a group of people that are representative of the group of people affected by the initiative in the ICU, nurses, doctors, trainees, respiratory therapists, dietary folks, pharmacists, all the folks that that are working in the ICU together to affect these outcomes. And that guiding coalition has to be, has to work together like a team. Again, remember our conversation about teamwork earlier in the podcast series. Then one needs to establish roles, goals, and responsibilities. Who's doing what? So that everyone's clear on everyone else's deliverable and the timelines by which those deliverables are forthcoming. Then, of course, there's the idea of seeking endorsement from the organization. So making sure that our goals in the ICU community are consistent with the, the, the CEO and the, and the CFO of the hospital, that we have their endorsement and, and, and executive agreement. And then, and then lastly, we get into a plan, do, check, act cycle where we initiate the actions, we check and assess how we're doing, we revise 
to order to optimize over time, and we do that iteratively. And then lastly, you know, we put in place some ways of measuring outcomes. So we can quantitate the outcomes, we can share those outcomes, and we have ways of disseminating and processing those outcomes so everyone's aware of it, and we can use that conversation to leverage more and more success. So I hope that makes sense. That's getting real granular on how you affect a strategy, namely assuring uniform outcomes through the real win worth model, but now getting granular to the change model. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that's awesome. So then with that outline in mind, what are some common pitfalls that people fall into that negatively affect their strategic planning and how can they avoid those pitfalls? Sure. Um, I think this really just gets to the idea of being mindful that there are frameworks for affecting change and, and getting teams to work together and being mindful of those checklists, if you will, and using those checklists to guide our actions. So in the change checklist, it's, again, developing a sense of urgency, putting a guiding coalition together, communicating the change vision after you've developed it, etc. cetera. Uh, so the pitfalls are that we we fail to abide by these useful tools. These are like checklists, like in the in the cockpit of a commercial airliner. Every time the plane che- takes off, the ki- the pilot, the co-pilot, have gone through a checklist, just like the checklist manifesto from uh, from work uh, in Atul Gawande's work and Peter Pronovost's work and others. The idea of of using these models of change, of teamwork, of leadership, of communication. Uh, as guidelines for our work in affecting strategy. Our failure to do so is, is the shortcoming. Our, our willingness to embrace these things and to make them active tools is the success. I hope that answers the question. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great point. These checklists only work if you actually use them. So if any of our listeners are intrigued by this talk or any of the articles in your series and are looking to further develop their strategic planning skills, do you have specific books or resources that you'd recommend to them? No, of course. And, and many of these are, of course, cited in the, in the reference lists from the various papers that we've been reviewing in this podcast series. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to engage a couple of things. You know, if you're looking for the the Bibles, if you will, of strategic planning through the, the business lens. Of course, Michael Porter, uh, who's, who's published a book, a book called Competitive Strategy Techniques for Analyzing Industries. He has a, an HBR, Harvard Business Review paper on strategy for healthcare, which is, which is very impactful. Uh, my colleague Peter Ray has written a book called Strategic Planning, a Practical Guide. Uh, Richard Bomer, who's a physician who taught at Harvard Business School, has written a a very interesting, provocative book called Managing Care, How Clinicians Can Lead a Change and Transform Healthcare. Now, these are these are resources that one could access to take a deeper dive on any of these, uh, on, on any of these concepts. So as we finish up this podcast and our whole series of podcasts, do you have a closing thought for our listeners on what you want them to take away from this series? Well, thank you again for the invitation, uh, Dr. Winter. It's really been a pleasure. Uh, I would say this, um, that recognizes we've been discussing all along that leadership competencies are different from our clinical and scientific competencies and that recognizing what they are 
um, and and developing mastery in each of them is important, number one. And that in developing leadership, as we've discussed earlier, there are really three components. There's curriculum, and in some ways the six papers that we've reviewed and and the curriculum that we've been reviewing in these podcasts is that. Um, it's being conversant with what's emotional intelligence, what's change management, uh, what how do one how does one develop an effective team? That's curriculum. Another component of leadership, developing leaders, which I'm sure all of our listeners have, are coaches and mentors, people who will give us, who will coach us in a psychologically safe way in service of our getting better. People who will put their arm around you and say, you know, Jamie, that was a good idea, but it really failed. And you might think about doing it this way. People who are in service of your success. And the third component of developing leaders is is what is commonly called in the field experiential leadership. In other words, embracing a leadership opportunity, performing in that role, being accountable for it, and having your success in that role leverage from the organization's point of view more and more opportunities for you to lead in broader and broader uh, fields of influence. So people don't become the CEO of the hospital right out of their internship or their fellowship. They become the CEO of their hospital after they have demonstrated their progressive leadership competencies through various additional incremental roles. And that's an example of experiential leadership. Uh, So to summarize, being mindful of these competencies, being deliberate in one's practice. We reviewed that earlier as well. Uh, Anders Ericsson's work, being deliberate in one's practice about accruing these skills, trying to be intentional about getting better uh, with smart goals for yourself. Uh, and realizing that these are are different skills than those that make us great doctors and scientists. I'll stop there. Well, a huge thank you to Dr. Stoller for sharing his time and expertise and passion with us and this and all of the other podcasts and articles. And of course, a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is the Chess Podcast. Until next time.